Hey, this is Greg, producer of the Mickey Dudes podcast. And if you enjoy listening to amazing stories about Disneyland from a truly fascinating gentleman, then we have a very special treat for you. But before we meet our guest and jump into our discussion, let's take a moment to introduce our esteemed panel. To my left, our boots on the ground, Disney Park expert, and Mickey Dudes podcast co-host, Mr. Dave Koch. Hi, everyone. Debbie was sick, so the union sent me. Also joining us from our roundtable crew, the very own Disney historian and resident engineer, Mr. Jeff Williams. Flash photography, I wouldn't. It alters the homing signal, and that's not good. Good evening, gentlemen, and thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited about this one. As am I. Hey, guys, this is a tremendous honor for us here at the Mickey Dudes Podcast. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And purposely, I didn't plan to give away too much in the open. So, if you're all ready, come on over, grab yourself a chair, and join us in the corner chat. Well, our very special guest's Disney career spanned nearly 40 years. In his illustrious tenure, he worked on designing the first advanced human figure audio animatronic, helped develop more than 100 vehicles, and so much more. In fact... He was once quoted as saying, if it moves on wheels at Disneyland, I probably designed it. Oh, and uh, did I mention he's an Imagineer and Disney legend? And personally, I love the fact that he calls himself a Disnoid. That's pretty awesome. And if I were to highlight all of his accomplishments, we'd never get a chance to talk to the one and only, don't call him Mr. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a man on the move. Bob Gurr. Hi, Bob, and thanks for joining us here in the corner chat. We really appreciate it. Well, howdy all out there in Bogland. You guys got a question? Oh, we've got plenty of questions, but I'll tell you what. I'm out of breath with that introduction, and we didn't even cover a tenth of a percent of your accomplishments. So, Dave, can you help me out here? Of course I can. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being here. Okay, so I understand your documentary is selling very well with the pre-orders. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what they'll see in it? Okay, is that a question that all of you have got? Do you want to know about uh, how the uh, Ape Pen Disney Products Company came up with this uh, documentary of uh, how I do things? Absolutely. Yes. Don't you want to know where to buy it? Of course. <laughs> ApePenProducts.com. Ape as in monkey, pen as in writing, and products as in Disney. ApePanProducts.com. Got it. Uh, also on the internet, you can uh, search around um, with that title, and you can also go to Los Angeles Magazine, and there is a uh, site that has a really nicely written kind of a documentary commercial for it that explains uh, the background of it, what you'll see. Uh, there's different uh, clicks to uh, different sites, and there's also a, a trailer. You can look at the trailer for it. So uh, if you do that uh, sometime, well, you'll be uh, highly informed uh, about the content of the, uh, of the documentary. Hey, Bob. Also, I, I noticed uh, I was really bummed that I couldn't uh, make it out to your Disney History Trail tours. I noticed there's one left. I, I was looking up on DisneyHistoryTrail.com. Uh, September 18th is still available. So can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on with that tour on the bus? Yeah. In fact, uh, if you guys were to go onto a site called fandom.com, that's F-A-N-D-O-M.com. This is Ernie Alonzo. He's a guy that 
He's kind of a haunted mansion guru, and he does uh, haunted uh, house tours in the city of Orange, uh, right near the city of Anaheim. Uh, he had this idea for a uh, history trail, and he said, would you like to be the ride on the bus and be the tour guide? And I says, yeah, because I got turned down at Walmart. I wasn't old enough, so I can, I can be the <laughs> tour guide with, on the microphone on the bus. Yes, I'll do that. And then, seriously, I told him, I said, well, you know, I've been doing that tour for about 15 years with uh, friends and relatives. And yeah. that surprised him. So we went out and we did a test run of all of the locations, and we drove it like we were driving a big 40-passenger uh, bus. Because, you know, some of the streets are kind of narrow. But anyway, we went out uh, a couple of months ago and did a timing run. He put together a beautiful uh, script. He did uh, video clips so that when the bus is driving from one place to another, well, we got a movie showing and all the TVs on the bus. So that way people are all uh, primed by the time we get to each location. And then that way they can, sometimes we just stop and we look at something because the uh, is the nature of it. You can't really uh, park the bus there. Other times, we just park the bus, we get off, we walk around, go look at everything, take a lot of pictures. It worked out really, really good because uh, the way the timing worked out, I was unsure how that would work. But we left only six minutes late because we had a late person, and then we hit our uh, lunch uh, thing uh, on the button, and then we hit the uh, return to the tour three minutes early. So we know this tour works, and it works very easily. I have a question, Bob. Did you design that bus too? No, it's a uh, <laughs> no, it's a Canadian built. I think it's called a Sumpta or a Sumpco. Hmm. A really nice bus. It's a, it's a double axle, not a triple axle, and it has a real modern restroom in the back. Nice sound system, nice seats, and the uh, company that runs them out here. Um, I think it's called Fast Deer Company. Are there any plans to have any more tours after September? Well, I'm not too sure. I don't know what I got myself into here. I, maybe I should have taken the Walmart job instead of being <laughs> Ernie has gotten numerous inquiries from private groups saying, hey, could you take 38 people that, from a private group? And uh, so he asked me what I thought, and I said, well, let's see if they, uh, let's, let's try one. I'm attempting to be retired now for over 20 years, and it's not working worth a darn. So, <laughs> But since, um, since I don't go to Disneyland anymore, I think doing the bus gigs would be kind of fun for people, because if you ever went to that site, saw they, did, they made a little movie of the first trip. Did anybody see that? Yeah, on YouTube, yep. I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a little movie of it that Ernie's assistant took. they will give you an idea what, what it looks like and what you're going to see and how it works. Well, of course, we have a nice box lunch. And of course, we do that at that Walt Disney's barn. Uh, so people that haven't seen the barn, it's a good chance for them to uh, visit there. But, yeah, I think it'd be kind of fun, say, once a month to uh, go out for a five-hour bus ride. And uh, I get a I get a free box lunch out of out of the deal. <laughs> there you go, it's an opportunity. Wait, did I hear you say you, since you don't go to Disneyland anymore? What can you ex expand on that? <laughs> what, what's uh, going on there? Oh well, did any of you watch Periscope a week ago? No. What did we miss? Yeah, are you familiar with Keith Gluck from the Walt Disney Family Museum? Oh yeah. Well, Keith came down there with his real cute girlfriend and said. Uh, he wanted want to answer some questions, so I answered the question. Then he says, uh, "Say, how about a um, a tour of your of your crazy house here on Periscope?" And I said, "Sure." 
Uh, we got a hole in the roof. The periscope will go right up through the roof, and we can show the world. <laughs> right. Yeah, so we did a 40-minute thing. If you go to Periscope and look for uh, Keith Gluck or look for Bob Gurr, you'll see it. Very nice. They do take questions. This darn thing, it got like 9,000 hits and 5,800 <laughs> reruns or whatever they call them. And, uh, but, uh, and these, uh, these little colored hearts, balloons on the right side, go up that screen and it looked like a forest fire of balloons. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. I think I really kind of like to do that again, but I'm not sure I want to do it in my house with that. Periscope's okay. fun. I mean, so maybe you'd, uh, that'd be the next phase to go do well, periscopes in the parks. Well, the problem is they, they allow time for the questions toward the end of the thing. And, of course, uh, here come a bunch of questions. They're all the same. It says, well, when is we don't see Bob at Disneyland. When's his next scheduled visit to Disneyland? And I said, there are none. <laughs> well, I don't have any scheduled visits there either. <laughs> we need to work on that. <laughs> yeah, I've had 60 fabulous years from the time Walt called me, and we built that place, and we built a lot of places ever since, and we, we achieved a lot of things, and I enjoyed all those 60 years. So that concluded a wonderful 60 years. I do public appearances uh, for raising uh, money for um, feeding homeless children here in L.A. I do that with Combat Radio. I do a few other uh, appearances. I just did the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet. So the bus thing is kind of a cute thing to do. So yeah. that way, when, when people would like to, you know, catch up with me, while well, they know, uh, first off, they know where they can't find me, and then there's uh, the places they can find me. <laughs> I was going to say, it's ironic you, you talk about Disney. I'm going to take a 90-degree turn away from Disney for a second and say, as a design engineer, I'm kind of envious of some of the stuff you designed for sure because I, I work in the oil field, so my stuff gets buried five miles deep. But it's so cool that you can walk around and, and see and even touch what the things that you've been involved with. But as far I've read almost all of your patents. I mean, I'm really fascinated with patents. I've got a bunch of patents of my own. But what I was curious with was what was the patent process like at Disney? How involved were you as far as like drawings and and uh, the writing and all the text. What was that like? Oh, well, it was simple. I never knew they were doing it. And uh, many of those patents were uh, years later, somebody would go on the Internet and, and copy something and send it to me and says, say, this is a good-looking patent. I said, well, I've never seen that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. In fact, one guy some years ago, he went and he collected all of them. I think it was like 12 or 13 of them. And uh, he bound them into a book. And I said, well, you know, I, have, I, have, I knew of some of them. A lot of them I hadn't seen them. And uh, when I got to looking at them, they gave my address all the places I used to live. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It puts it right on there. <laughs> well, I guess I'm so fortunate. Thank God I don't have to write the patents. I don't have anything to do with that. I just I have to supply drawings and some you know loose terminology. But I was going to say... I've, what out of all the patents I've read of, of yours, one of my favorite is got to be, and I'll tell you the the title of it: "Animal Prop Using Airbags." And it doesn't tell you a lot, but it's from 1993. And all I can say is, uh, the Mickey dudes don't even know about this, but it shows a silhouette of a very large ape. <laughs> so your King Kong, basically, your King Kong animatronic is just one of the the coolest things out there. Can you talk about maybe the design and? What went through that, and it's a non-Disney project, but it's still yeah. The awesome. um, well, actually, um, I was the president of Gur Design Incorporated. You know, being the president and the employee, 
And I got to do so many fascinating jobs, a lot of stuff that Disney would be very conservative, wouldn't do. But other companies, like you know, Universal Studios and, of course, uh, Steve Wynn in Las Vegas or Michael Jackson, something like that. These were the super interesting jobs, and the patent for the uh, fingers of the King Kong was the first animated King Kong for Universal Studios in 1986 was uh, 30 feet tall. But the two King Kongs I designed for Universal Florida, one was um, sort of like hanging off of a off side of a building where the hand didn't have to do much, but the other one, fingertip to fingertip, when he had his hands out trying to grab the, uh, the falling um, cable car, that was 54 feet, fingertip wow, to fingertip. Man. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, weight is a, a tremendous constraint. So uh, I had to do some very tricky structure uh, on the arms out to the elbow and then from the elbow out really super light. And uh, it was quite obvious that I could, you know, you look at hot air balloons and balloons can be made in any shape. And I figured out a absolutely featherweight structure that the fingers could operate with uh, little tiny um, cords, you know, like a spectra line pulling on the inside of the fingers, uh, but with the air actually being the muscle that put the fingers back out straight. So the animation, the whole animation of those fingers probably didn't weigh two or three pounds. Whoa. Well, and because uh, inflatable, we had a little uh, a little backbone arrangement with some little bearings in it, but it was basically you sew up the shapes, and then they hold the shape with the air on, and then when you pull on them with this little lanyard, they curl in like their fingers are curling. <laughs> so I didn't realize uh, Universal had patented that until many, many years later. Genius. Have you had an opportunity to experience the new King Kong attractions? They have an element of adventure now? No, I haven't, but I did see a, uh, a YouTube run-through for the whole show, and uh, I never saw so many creatures in my life jumping over the top of one another. It's, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's quite impressive. I'm glad they did a physical uh, gorilla at the end, of, you know, King Kong, rather than the stupid one they have at Universal Hollywood, which is just a Peter Jackson movie. Yeah. So I, th I think Universal did, a, in my opinion, a very super job. You know, the world shifted into CGI a long time ago. And as you know, I worked on Godzilla. And yeah. Godzilla was the, uh, the actually the last of the Hollywood giant practicals, if you know what practicals mean in movie business. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, when I was working for Steven Spielberg, he was starting to work on Jurassic Park. And as we got going on pre-production planning, Dennis Mirren from ILM comes in and says, Stephen, uh, I think you could do this with a computer eventually. And so Stephen was quite taken with that idea. So he says, OK, folks, well, we're going to stop for a year. I'll make another movie and I'll come back. And that gave Dennis Mirren a chance to actually get the CGI to work. So the funny thing was, in total history, I was there when the first CGI was first suggested from a Dennis Mirren to a Steven Spielberg. And I was also there on a Hollywood movie when the last big practical machine was ever built. Wow, very cool. There's been small practicals ever since. But I mean, when you talk about giant machines. So right. I thought, well, that, that's a pretty cute bunch of bookends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a shame. We've, we, we, even the movie industry, I guess to save some bucks, they've gone down that route. The new Star Wars are trying to bring back a little bit of that, you know, mechanical stuff back and puppetry and whatnot. But like you said, it's, not, it's still not a machine, you know. Well, I think everybody got a, kind of a bad mouth of um, trying to have big machines. 
Uh, I was actually just going to take it to a lighter sense at the moment. I'm a big tiki bar fan, and I understand you are. And I was wondering if uh, you have any uh, pieces from the, any of the Trader Sam's, either on the West Coast or the East Coast. I just got my Black Pearls and completed my collection. The only, if, if you're talking about pieces, yeah, that great big Nautilus boat that's about a $30 pile of rum and flowers and straws. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the, the staff at um, the Poly, uh, they pooled their money and bought me a drink. And uh, I talked them into uh, kind of watering it down a little bit, and then we finished it. And uh, they said, well, here, this is for you. Take it home. So, yes, I have this great big ceramic uh, Nautilus in my house, if, if that's a piece of uh, Trader nice. Sam's. Oh, man. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's one of the crowning jewels of my collection. That's kind of a thing you'd never want to drink by yourself, I can assure you. <laughs> they didn't want to serve me because I was alone when I ordered it, and they said you need to have a couple people. I was able to sweet talk them into giving it to me on my own, and I don't know how I made my flight for the airport that night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know what that was like. <laughs> when you start Project eating the flowers, that's when you know, okay, you had a little bit too much. <laughs> I keep hearing about this famous Gertini. I think I need to YouTube that one myself. <laughs> Taking another turn, I noticed you, you've done a lot of work with Roger Brogy. Once again, patent talk, but I noticed a ski lift came out of some stuff that you worked with. Can you kind of shed some light? I, I couldn't find anything about this ski lift, and A, what's unique about it, and then B, has it ever been kind of implemented anywhere? No, what happened was the, um, as, as you, if, if you know your history on the Mineral King Project, the uh, it's a very long, long uh, story. It went uh, a very, very long time to do with the Department of the Interior. Several government agencies thought it would be nice to uh, add some um, a little bit more outdoor adventures and entertainment and sports into the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. The area known as Mineral King was uh, an area that could be done. So there was, uh, over a period of time, a request for proposals to industry. And one of the uh, respondents was uh, the Disney Company. But as soon as Disney got into responding to what the government wanted to do, the Sierra Club got wind of that and started opposing uh, it. So that set off about 12 years of fighting back and forth and technological explorations, uh, all kinds of things, and in which partway through there was an idea that this resort would be so big and Disney-style hourly capacity that none of the ski lifts they looked at would be uh, fast enough or enough uh, hourly capacity. So uh, they asked me to take a look at it, so I took a look at it. And in fact, I made trips to um, Colorado with some of the guys that were in charge of uh, the ski development and uh, came up with this idea of uh, back-loading, side-moving chairlift that held four people. And yes, it did have capacity. We built a test track with linear motors. We built that in Glendale. Ran that for quite a while. In the meantime, the Von Royal Company, if you know their history in, in Europe, uh, they were highly desirous of being the winning bidder for uh, doing this job. So they volunteered on their nickel to flesh this whole thing out with a design based upon the principles that I'd come up with, based on the success of the test track. And I guess between them and Disney, they decided, to, well, we better patent this thing. And then after a while, the, uh, the infighting between the Sierra Club and the uh, government agencies and Disney just got worn out and kind of 
gave up, but they gave up very slowly because you got to remember Ron Miller was president at that time, and he's a gung-ho skier, and Walt was a skier, and they were really interested in having a ski place that they would design so that they could use it. But the whole thing fizzled out, and the only thing left was the patent. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, ironically, there is a ski lift at Blizzard Beach, <laughs> but I, I imagine that has nothing to do with that design. But as far as you know, there's there's never been anything implemented on, on the high-capacity ski lift that you were you no, invented. But, no, but the funny thing is, uh, in the following years, uh, four-passenger ski lifts became common. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It seems about... I've never skied once in my life, so but I'm, my wife tells me that's the, the common theme now is uh, all four-person. Oh, yeah. The four-person ones that run now don't have near the high capacity that what I call the back-entry side-moving one. Yeah. That really, that was really big capacity. Man, somebody's missing on an opportunity here. I think somebody needs to jump on this. <laughs> People have always asked me to come up with uh, how to get something to work, and that's what I do. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then, of course... Sometimes you get way ahead of everybody else, and then the job doesn't, you know, the job doesn't proceed. But in the meantime, you, you actually uh, invented something that turned out that derivatives of it actually became industry practice. Yeah, that's that's cool. Turning from that to another one of your amazing creations, the monorail, I actually have a question from a buddy of mine who was a former pilot, and he just wanted to know what color would you like to see join the fleet next with the since uh, teal and peach just came in. You know, once you get past teal, I'm not sure what the heck we, uh, <laughs> we do there. Uh, we've got to have either uh, speckled lavender or... or, or <laughs> I, you know, well, see, the problem with the reason why I went to colors to begin with was to identify the train from a distance. And we did that first with the red and the blue. And then pretty soon we had red, blue and yellow. And then pretty soon we had red, blue and green and Disneyland. And then we took off with that. So I picked all those colors up to the last few colors. See, a, a pink and an orange and a red and low light at sunset are really hard to pick out. Mm. And so, and teal is bad enough, but... Well, shoot, they're wrapping them with ads now, so it's even worse. Yeah, well, yeah when you do the ad wrap, at least you can tell sort of what which ad it's coming, you know. I said, yeah. oh, this is, hello, well, this is Blue Red holding for Avenger. Hello, Avenger, <laughs> clear to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now that we're, uh, the Olympics are upon us, tomorrow night's the opening ceremony, I'm really fascinated with your UFO design from the closing ceremonies in 1984 Olympics there in L.A. I remember that to this day. I mean, I watched the YouTube video, and I swear it gave me chills. Can you kind of expand upon that story and, and what the trials and tribulations of making that? Well, I suppose you guys have gone on uh, YouTube because there's some old uh, beta footage, and then there's a pretty good footage, I think, came off ABC that shows about maybe two minutes, three minutes of the thing. And in fact, if you follow the commentary sometimes, there are people still today arguing over what the heck that thing was. <laughs> and, and buried in there, there are a couple of people who um, have read my complete explanation of that. But there's other people saying, no, 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 a human could not have done that. That had to be a real alien thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there was 93,000 people in the Coliseum on the final night of the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984, and most of them had been drinking beer, so they all have a different memory, so they still to this day claim uh, they, they really saw it. 
And, uh, of course, in the interim, all on the Internet, there's a lot of people who use other kind of substances when they're watching the Internet, so they see something entirely different. <laughs> but I trust that you guys have called me in order to get the exact answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. I'm working with Michael Jackson, and I'm designing this uh, lighting device for the 1984 Victory Show with he and his brothers. I had to go to, with the first loadout for the rehearsals down to Alabama. And so down there was this guy by the name of John McGraw, who ran the Miles and McGraw Stage Design Company. He designs all the big, you know, the big giant stages around. And he got the job of the flying saucer for the closing ceremonies of the Olympics in L.A. So he'd been working with suppliers, you know, like electrical, uh, gas turbine, generators, that kind of stuff, helicopter company. And he ran out of time and he ran out of money, but every couple of days he'd ask me, he says, say, Bobby, if you were to ever do a flying saucer, how would you do this? How would you do that? So he was asking us a million questions, and I never knew what the heck he was doing. And then one day I got a call when I was out at, I think it was called Applied Entertainment Systems, which was going bankrupt that day. And he says, well, hey, Bob, there's no time, no money. Why don't you take this job? Oh, thank you, John. You're out of time and there's no money and the company I'm doing work for just went bankrupt. Okay, I'm available. So, <laughs> really, that's how it all happened in one afternoon. So, in a matter of a day or two, uh, I've, I've figured out the business relationship. I had to go through a, um, a company that did microfilm equipment, but they were next door to the Hughes Airport, which had access to the LA Olympics Committee. And so we put together the business deal, and then, okay, I'll figure out the design. Then I got a Roger Brogy Jr., his little shop, uh, to uh, build a substantial portion of it, if and when I figured it out. But, of course, figuring it out, it went really fast. I mean, within another two or three days, I had the, the basic concept, the whole darn thing. And then I had access to John McGraw's vendors. Had been, they'd been all lined up. They'd been promised, but nobody paid. And I had to call all these people up and down the state and give them a song and dance about, yeah, McGraw chickened out. He has no money, has no time, and I'm taking the job, and I don't have any money either, and I don't have any time, but would you stick with me long enough? Because if I come up with a design, the Olympics Committee will approve it, and then you can get your money. Of course, I'd get my money, too. And that all happened in, uh, so quick. The, um, in hindsight, the Michael Jackson job, that went by in five weeks, start to finish, for about a $200,000 rock and roll job. And then the Olympics thing, I only had four weeks from the, the, the first time John, John says, do it, until we, uh, we did it. So some of those jobs will go very, very fast. And I'll give you a clue. You have to trust people. They have to trust you. You have to not have a project manager get anywhere near the job. Don't let the coordinators <laughs> get near the job. Don't do any estimating. Just understand what you're in for and what you got to do and where the risky points are and which things you got to jump now and which things you can let slide another day or two. And then stay on top of the whole darn thing, technical-wise and business-wise. So I was the prime contractor working through this intermediary for the Los Angeles Olympics Committee. So I'd get home at night and I would uh, do all the book work because I was the accountant. When I had uh, half a dozen people working for me, as 1099, so I have to keep all the governmental records and had to you know, pay all the unemployment insurance and all that stuff, in addition to designing it, in addition to drawing pictures. Wow. Mm. Yes, when there's a red-hot job, people can do this. So anyway, it got built and we took it down to uh, test it. 
few days before, and of course the test failed because Tommy Walker used to work for a Walt and David Walper run the show. They wanted it to look like a physical flying saucer, which meant it had a fabric cover on it. And then I, I learned at the last second the helicopter downwash is much bigger than McGraw ever said. And I learned after a couple of helicopter guys when I'm sitting there having a brown bag lunch before the helicopter came. So I was prepared for the thing to uh, not work. And sure enough, it didn't work. And within about two minutes, the thing uh, collapsed due to the air loads. And uh, Bill McMillan, the helicopter pilot, we set it down on the ground. I crawled in there and looked at it. There was, there was nothing damaged. It just, some of the parts that were held together by cables just simply popped open. So Walper uh, told me, uh, this was David Walper, uh, producer, he says, well, Gurr, I got a $50,000 progress check in my pocket for you, but you can't have it until tomorrow. You, you run that thing again, and I'll give you the 50000 as progress. So we fixed it up, did uh, some work next day, and two hours before the helicopter came, the helicopter came, picked it up. The guy flew it about 60 miles an hour, which we weren't supposed to do. And the thing uh, was very stable. It worked very nice. It weighed uh, about 30, I think, 3,860 pounds. And the big lift helicopter has a 314 big lift running at just about 95% power to do it. Holy and then we tested it. We tested it at night, a couple of nights uh, while programming it at the sports arena behind a 12-foot fabric wall. First night was very funny. Every, any of you guys ever been around there? A, a, a really big helicopter when it's running? Yeah. 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 That's <laughs> about 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Anyway, Bill McMillan, the helicopter pilot, says, okay, uh, I'll, we'll hook up the cable. And I bought a 100 foot cable plus three uh, 30 foot cables. So I had a bridle on the thing. He says, uh, it's your machine. You hook it up. Okay, and Bill says, climb to the top of the ladder and hold the hold the loop on your cable and just hold it up where I can see it, and I'll drive the hook of the helicopter into it, but don't you move. Just stay there. Oh, brother. <laughs> 60 mile an hour wind comes to me, but as soon as the helicopter gets over, you know there's no more wind? It's easy. You're running Oh, in. right. Yeah, you're in the eye, in the vortex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then he then he starts lifting it, and then the wind really starts because now he's adding uh, you know thirty six hundred and eighty pounds or whatever it is. Oh, that was terrifying. I did that every night for I think four nights. Wow! But the first night we lifted it out of the secret enclosure, and he started north up Figueroa Street, which had all these uh, card tables and vendors with their little tents and all their little doodads and souvenirs for sale. What do you think that helicopter did for all their tables? <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, all this merchandise is flying down Figueroa Street. Just an awful, awful mess. We got the test done. I went back out of the enclosure and I went over and everybody's trying to put themselves together. And I was trying to go around and apologize. And these guys said, Oh, man, that's okay. That's the damnedest thing we ever seen in our life. You run that thing anytime, we're going to love that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't upset. <laughs> but the next day, I go up to the Indian Museum, and I'm talking to a lady, and she says, oh, no, she says, what are you doing? I said, well, we're, we're working on Olympus. What are you doing? Well, we're, we're running a flying saucer on Figueroa Street at 2 o'clock in the morning. 
She says, oh, my goodness, there was a young man in here yesterday, and he swore up and down it was truthful. There was a flying saucer, I'm going to figure out. And I told him the poor man's crazy, and he needs psychiatric help. I hope he comes back and tell him he's okay. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I got to wonder how many calls came into L.A. County 911 those couple of nights. Well, wow. These are, these are the kind of jobs Disney would never do because they'd never get themselves in that kind of a pickle. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but the thing, um, I didn't have a lick of technical trouble with it. All the vendor stuff were, oh, we did have a problem. The solar turbine, it was a rental unit from uh, solar down in San Diego. They, they didn't clean the, um, the fuel filter. And the thing ran every, every day until our uh, test, the last test flight, and then the turbine started acting really funny, and I was on the radio in a helicopter, and I said, shut everything off, bring it back. We just lost the uh, jet engine. Mm. Came back, and a guy came up to San Diego. He says, oh, actually, it's a fuel filter. Five minutes worth of work, fine. Just open it up, blow it out, put it back, and it run. <laughs> so that was, that was nothing close to something not working. That's yeah. a um, wipe your brow moment for sure. Holy cow! Yeah. Well, then, yeah. Uh, well, then, when uh, after the see, I never did see the show because I had to stay on the field. We had a little about a three inch television set that monitored what the aircraft was doing, and uh, so yeah, I could see. Oh, it took off, it lit up, and it went up, and yeah, it's the uh, TV can see it, but I couldn't see it from where I was, so I never saw the whole thing. Came back, and then Bill landed it, got it back down uh, safe, and the. Um, the amount of relief of us all, especially myself, underneath that helicopter, about five flights, which means ten times I'm underneath that thing, and the pilot told me, he says, don't worry about it. He says, if I lose an engine, the, air, the airplane will fall straight down on top of you and crush you to death. <laughs> but he says, don't ever attempt to run because the flying parts will chop you up. Oh. So, <laughs> I didn't have a good choice. That was reassuring. just... <laughs> well, needless to say, um, we were both in tears. Yeah, that was thrilling, I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. Considering your careers kind of just uh, span from different uh, intellectual properties and everything, I was just wondering if you had a chance to put your creative spin on, be it in a Disney park or at Universal or anywhere else, what would you, uh, what is that one project that you would want to get involved with, me to consult on or kind of reimagine if you were given the opportunity to do so a rose parade float really yeah cool. turn them on roses every every uh, january 1st look at all the crazy moving uh, stuff on uh, floats that goes down colorado boulevard oh, look yeah. at everything that honda does those big tall animated things yeah i i get invited to go uh to uh, these places that engineer and build those floats and i get to see them um right around the mid late august when they got most of the structure done, all the mechanicals working, and they're starting to uh, skin up the shapes and everything. I got a lady friend that lets me come over to the main factory and says, walk around, climb over everything, climb in the seats, look at everything you like. So that's one job nobody ever asked me to do. What would you design if you were given that chance? Well, I have no original ideas. What I do is, you remember the name of the movie is... Bob Gurr, turning dreams, dreams into reality. Somebody, somebody has to bring the dream either in words or printed words or spoken words, and then I'll start thinking about it, and then I will come up with several ways to do it, and then I'll pick the most probable ways that look like it might get us there the fastest, soonest, cheapest, and then I'll start in on it. 
and then we got it done. A guy with a dream, an entrepreneur, a Walt Disney, a Steve Wynn, a Steven Spielberg, they can't get to first place and then the, unless they go out and they find people that can do things that they want to get done. And then there's guys like me that stand around and wait for somebody to come and ask. And, you know, it's a simple case of, hello, I'm the entrepreneur with the crazy idea. You're the man who will do the crazy ideas and actually make it work. Are you interested? Well, I sure am. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's nothing more complicated than that. Yeah. Bob, have you uh, seen the Autopia after Honda has done its uh, little conversion? I've seen the photographs. Yeah, that's, I wrote them a couple weeks ago. I guess I was expecting a little more. Uh, in 2000, they put four new body styles on the Disney Anatopia on the old chassis, but, you know, went to a newer engine and electric start and all that sort of stuff. And then they had this uh, polychromatic paint that would show, change colors, as it would, you know, in, in daylight. And that, so it was a really interesting uh, paint type. Well, the new, improved, redone Honda reopening of this was to get rid of the expensive paint and go back to the cheap paint. Mm. <laughs> and they, no. But, yeah, going back to the cheap paint, the lower the maintenance cost, was the uh, new uh, reintroduction. No, what you saw is what you didn't see anymore. Yeah, definitely. Yikes. Well, I was curious why they didn't maybe give it a... What would your take on being maybe going a little more futuristic and going electric? I mean... I know that's kind of jazzy now, but it's not not the original uh, gas uh, feel to it. But what you, what's your feeling about the electric conversion? Well, I'd go further than that. I've been on record for a number of years that the entire Disneyland Tomorrowland should be removed completely, including the sub-ride, but leave the monorail beam where it is. Design something that would be a cross between Star Wars and Avatar, but something with a lot of vertical stuff, a lot of greenery, a lot of action, and we would have what would be like an Utopia, which is like a speeder's track that's definitely a four-wheel vehicle because that's what the kids like. And it'd be all electric, and you could push different buttons to have it sound like whatever cars you want. One kid wants a Ferrari, and the other guy wants a C7, C7 Chevy. Uh, somebody else would like to have it sound like a Tesla with a bad transmission, and it'd all be electric, it'd be clean, we get rid of the gasoline, we get rid of the smog. you got to realize that Autopia Track is the filthiest uh, air in all of Southern California. Hmm. I would like electric, and I would hope something like that would get built, and Tesla could be the sponsor. But no, they decided to take out a perfectly beautiful river full of great big trees, do something that way. Yeah, it's getting very crowded over there, that's for sure. Hey, give it a few years. Maybe Tesla will uh, be the first billion company and uh, they'll start, you know, money talks maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be absolutely super because, uh, you know, I've met Elon Musk uh, years ago. I've been up to the factory. I've got a number of friends of Teslas. I've driven every model of Tesla from the Roadster all the way to several different S models and I even drove the X uh, in January. Yeah. yeah, so I follow everything Tesla does. Cool. I even got a Tesla factory T-shirt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, my next car is hopefully be a Tesla, but that's a few years away. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I, uh, I took Walt Disney's granddaughter, Joanna. We went out for a Tesla ride. She drove. I sat in the back, terrified, and I told her how good this car was, and would you believe it? She bought one. Very nice. Oh, <laughs> Wow. Hey, Bob, before we start to wrap things up here, I kind of want to pick your brain. Being a designer myself, I know how important that process is to you. But I think with that side of the brain and 
like yourself, you're also other side of the brain with your engineering mindset. Has there ever been a project that you worked on where the right brain has clashed with the left brain and you've hit a wall? And if you have, where did you get the solution to overcome that problem? Okay, number one, it was never a problem. It was never a clash. And if you buy my documentary, you'll have uh, a full explanation with a sample using the Florida uh, Mark IV monorail to illustrate how I do stuff. The reason for the documentary goes back a great number of years. As you know, I, I do these blogs. I you know answer questions. I do public appearances. I'm on panels and people interview me and I make DVDs. And the answer always came out the same. They says, yeah, Bob, you told us what you did, but you never tell us how you did anything. And that's always been a very touchy subject because a lot of people have assumptions that people have to be uh, trained and qualified to design things, particularly public transport that could kill if it's wrong. Mm -hmm, Exactly. You also got to remember that I was fired from Disney in 1981 because I was not a licensed engineer. And they required uh, by that time that you must be a licensed engineer. And I wasn't. So I left and I formed Gur Design Company. No engineering education whatsoever in my life. I never got past Geometry 1 because I got an F in the 10th grade, and that was that. But that didn't stop me figuring out anything anybody wanted to figure it out because it's it's sort of simple in a way. Can you listen to the guy's questions? Can you actually think? And have you been curious all your life and are currently curious every day about everything, even the stuff that you know you'll never be able to use, but you just might someday, instead of sitting around playing uh, games, you know, video games, playing games on a smartphone, which is like, that's a dumb phone when you do it that way. Uh, (laughs) Walt Disney was curious his whole life to watch that man ask questions of people and just nose himself around the world. There's a lot of early Imagineers, that's all they do. And a lot of them that achieve great things never were trained for what they wound up doing. And I'm in exactly that same boat. It's a little bit more complicated like that, and that's why Carlene Thea of 8-Pen Products said, well, you've got to sit still long enough to explain the how you do it. And the how you do it, it's a lot of people, they don't, they don't want to believe it. They say, well, it's not possible to design a monorail in your fifth year there, and it's the first one in the Western Hemisphere, and it runs. You know, it'll add a lot of problems. We have had to build a new one later, but it was a first, and it was running, and Walt wanted it, and you did it. Right. There's a way that when you never see things as a problem. You see things as so many possibilities, so the only problem, the monus, so to speak, is I got four or five ideas this thing might work. Let me see which two or three look like they might go. I'll go with the first one, and if I go a couple of days and it doesn't look like it's going to work, I say, well, that was a fail fast. I want to fail fast at any one of them, so I get to the one that really looks like is the best course to take. And that might be something that's going to last for three or four years, and it might be something that's going to last two days. Same thought process exactly. So you reduce the whole thing down to say, well, yes, I have no formal education, but I have life experiences. I'm curious. I paid attention to everything just out of curious interest. And then I would combine an instinct of what might work with a life experience. 
Now, you can't buy that in any college because a college is um, kind of a bad thing. People have pointed out the reason I had an easy time was because I never went to college. College is like, uh, let's say you got a four-year college, it's like a water trough. On one end, it's, uh, that's uh, first year, and on the low end, that's the fourth year, and, uh, and students are water going down that trough. And it's sequential. You have a curriculum, which is the name for a water trough, and you have this highly detailed curriculum that you must do and you must take tests and you must be graded. What happens is four years of that, your, your thinking has generally shifted to the idea that if somebody gives me something to do, I know that I follow processes. Processes, if I do it long enough and I follow the rules, I will have a product at the end of it. Well, I'm sorry, folks, that is not the way it works. The water can't get out of the water trough, but since I was never in the water trough, I was free to jump in all directions <laughs> anytime, willy-nilly, trying to work stuff out with no process. See, I don't respond to the word process, and you used it very early in this program, that I'm very serious about the process is the thing you never want to have. You want to have the ability to think free and clear and do all your thinking, trying to get to the heart of what this dream guy has you doing for him. Right. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, Bob. We we spend the first couple of years, engineers out of college, kind of reprogramming them and showing them how to do things the way we want them done. So it's the college colleges can definitely uh, send a person down the wrong track and not think for themselves. Well, you'll find out in the uh, in the DVD, Carlene Thee went and got uh, guys like Marty Sklar and Craig Russell runs, uh, you know, did a lot of work with WDI and yeah, Chris Crump, Garner Hole, who builds all that stuff, Glenn Austin, who was one of my trainee engineers back in the mid-70s, a couple other people, even Joel Fritchie. And uh, I told her, I says, well, go, go get a bunch of witnesses and ask them how I do stuff. <laughs> so not not until the documentary was done did I have a good picture of how I do stuff. Man, we're so fortunate she sat you down <laughs> and cornered you to, to say these things. <laughs> well, Bob, I think on that note, we have a very funny moment to close our show on. All right. I'll wait for it. All right. Well, then here we go. Uh, Bob, are there any upcoming appearances that you'd like to share with us? I don't have any appearances in the uh, East the rest of this year. I, there's a potential another one in Seattle. Oh, in a couple of months, I guess. And um, outside of the September, I guess September 18th uh, history trail, I don't have any at, at the moment that uh, are confirmed. Well, before we bring this episode to a close, gentlemen, can you tell our listeners where they can find each of you on social media? Dave? You can find me at Figment's Reality on Twitter and Dave Koch on uh, Facebook. And Jeff, where can we find you? Braindud92 on uh, Twitter and just Braindu on Instagram. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at G Nevis. That's N-E-V-I-U-S. And look me up on Facebook at Greg Nevis. Before we exit our ride vehicles, can you share with us uh, where we can find you on social media? Well, the first one, of course, is simple. BobGurr.com. Another one is uh, Facebook, Bob Gurr. There's two or three Facebooks. Bob Gers, look at. And if you can't get anywhere, just Google my name and it's everywhere. And don't forget to check out our website at www.themickeydudes.com for some great blogs written by our very own Mickey Dudes. Keep up the great work, guys. All right. Well, we're going to bring this episode to a close. Bob, thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It has been a blast. Yes. 
I enjoy uh, questions that are almost intelligent anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and we wish you the best of luck with the documentary and can't wait to get our copies. On behalf of my very special guest, Bob Gurr, and the rest of the Mickey Dudes podcast crew, thank you all for tuning in. And remember, there's always a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. We'll see you again next time in the Corner Chat. Say goodnight, guys. Goodnight, guys. Goodnight. You've just listened to another exciting episode at the Mickey Dudes Podcast. You can find the Mickey Dudes on Facebook at the Mickey Dudes Podcast and on Twitter at the Mickey Dudes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share the love on Stitcher or iTunes. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again real soon. Uh, you are on Twitter, correct? I'm not a twit. <laughs> <laughs> now you stop laughing, kids. <laughs>